0: Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental.
1: And here's your
0: 30-second summary. Mrs. Graham and Mrs. Vollenweider request the pleasure of your company at an informal discussion on the life of Emily Post. Today, please feel free to bring a companion. Dress
1: inconsequential. The end. Let's talk about Emily Post.
0: But first, let's drop her into history. In 1922, the first facsimile is sent over phone lines in Washington, D.C., and the first microfilm device was introduced. Speaking of technology, the BBC and many other stations around the world began commercial broadcasting. The International Astronomical Union adopted stellar classification system created by astronomer and jump cannon, and it's still being in use with some modifications. Insulin was first used to treat diabetes in humans, and the ice cream treat Eskimo pies were patented. In 1922, Ulysses by James Joyce and Reader's Digest were first published, as was a blue book that has taught generations proper behavior, written by U.S. socialite, novelist, journalist, decorator, Emily Price Post, Etiquette in Society, in Business, in Politics, and at Home.
1: Emily Bruce Price was born on October 27, 1872 in Baltimore, Maryland, the only surviving child of Bruce Price and Josephine Lee Price. Mama was the daughter of an extraordinarily wealthy coal baron. New money, you might say, Um, but with ties going back to the Mayflower. So the money was new. The bloodline was as old as you could get in the United States. I know. She was like
0: nine times removed from the Mayflower. It was Priscilla and John Alden, for those of you who are Mayflower groupies. Fans? (laughs)
1: Aficionados. Aficionados. That's a much better word. (laughs) Um, Papa's family were, let's say, intellectuals for the most part. His own father was, in fact, one of President Abraham Lincoln's advisors. So Bruce, that's Papa, grew up in Maryland, which was considered the South and still sort of is. Um, With one brother who fought in the North during the Civil War and one who died while fighting for the South. We hear about those families all the time,
0: you know, where brother is pitted against brother and divided. And that was so apparent in Maryland at the time because it was one of those border states.
1: We talked about this during the Mary Todd Lincoln podcast. Kentucky is the same. Maryland and Kentucky are the most divided states. So you think they seceded don't you? But they didn't. They never did. They were in the Union as states. But house to house, brother to brother, friend to friend, this was a very divided place. So people's hearts even. It's hard to categorically hate the other side when you know some of them by name and went to school with them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Papa's father had used his influence, in fact, to keep his third son from being attached to either side in the conflict and... Papa was attending Princeton when his father died. And soon afterward, he dropped out of college to follow his own dream of becoming an architect. So when you're becoming an architect, you really have to start at the bottom as another man's apprentice. So that's what Papa was doing. He was a relatively low man on somebody else's totem pole when Papa and Mama met at her debut at 16 years old. And we're married four months later. And I have to tell you, I absolutely shudder to think of my life's direction if I'd married my high school boyfriend. It really boggles me.
0: Oh, I know. Me too.
1: You know, up to like mid-20s, because I
0: was 28 when I got married. Oh, what were you thinking? Yeah. No (laughs) kidding.
1: So you really choose your mate. This will come to bite us all later. You choose your mate on appearance and family. It's almost more like a business deal than it is... True love, kind of. Hmm. So they set out for their honeymoon, the the Grand Tour of Europe, classic, with her parents. (laughs) And her younger brother. (laughs) Like, okay. Three weeks on an ocean liner across the ocean with your in-laws required a lot of champagne and other assorted beverages, is what I'm saying about that.
0: (laughs) Well, they traveled in style, though. They were on one of the newest Cunard boats, and, you know, it's nothing compared to the boats now. but. In size and stuff, it was the biggest one out there. But even then, it wasn't big enough. Even modern cruise liners probably aren't big enough.
1: (laughs) So they docked and got set up in their hotel. And this is the real story. Father-in-law left everybody there to take off to South Africa, where he had caught the sniff, the rumor of a new gold mine. Well, you know, the coal had made him one of the richest men around. And oh, good. There's someone here to take care of the women. My boy. See you later, alligator. And he peace outed, leaving the new groom in charge of all and sundry. I know. Of course, the
0: other story is that Bruce was the one that couldn't wait to bail ship. Just a year before he had gotten married, as part of his own uh, self-education, he had gone to Europe and traveled and looked at the architecture of Europe and studied it. But there were some places he didn't get to. So the fake story says that Bruce went off to investigate all these other places that he had missed, saying Tuteluskis to the Lee family. But it wasn't the case.
1: Well, and I don't know. I mean, Emily Post herself always told that story that it was her own father that left on his own honeymoon and it just seems like a super weird story. Like what's the point of telling that story? I mean, you should know and we will just see without having to tell you that she adored her father and really had not a lot of time for her mother until much later in her life. So is that just a story showing how little he regarded his wife? I just don't understand the benefit of that story.
0: Yeah, I don't either.
1: Well, so Papa no. did not leave. And so for six months, he juggled the social calendar, etc., accompanied the ladies and sketched and looked at buildings whenever he could, maybe networked, ate some pasta. It's all behind a curtain. <laughs> a lot of this family's life is behind a curtain. Well, finally, Mama said, it is time to go home. I don't trust these foreign doctors here and I want to have a baby. So who's the boss, really? <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love that. And she's also younger. She was, what, 16, I think? Yes. At the time. And he was, what, 23? But he was dutiful. I'll say that.
1: Well, I think her family's the one with the money. I don't know if that means you're the boss. But anyway. Well, he had plans once he got back home. His father-in-law was giving
0: him seed money to start his own company. So, you know, going home held a lot of appeal for someone who wanted to get to work.
1: So Papa, with that seed money, started his own architecture firm in Baltimore. Now, I have to tell you, that is one way to leapfrog past the apprentice stage. He designed and built some houses there, row houses, um, one of which he moved into with his wife, and they are still there. If anybody was going to make it as a self-educated architect, which makes me
0: really fearful now, because what do architects go to school for? Five years? At least. Yeah. I mean, there's so much science behind the whole thing. And he just like went off and studied some drafters and, you know, looked at some buildings and, but he was still a brilliant
1: architect. So they moved into one of them, not the best one. If you look at it, number 10 way the best, but they moved into number 14. So maybe yeah. we can provide you with pictures. I mean, you'll all agree. Number 10 is the best. Now I'm not sure how good the neighborhood is. It's all been divided up into apartments now. Anyway, doesn't matter. Back at the homestead, Emily Bruce Price was born October 27th, 1872, and for the first five years of her life lived insulated by extreme wealth from any economic depression. There was a major depression the year after she was born, although her family, nobody felt it. Um, (laughs) This is the only hardship. Uh, It's a pretty big one. Her only sibling died when he was less than two years old. Yeah. Yeah. That is a hardship.
0: And there's some mystery surrounding her actual birthday because of that. Um, But we are going by the one that's on her headstone.
1: They had moved to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, where Papa was using, I have to say, a nepotism to get building contracts that really his age and experience, I mean, you're not going to get that otherwise.
0: No, no. But he's a good architect already. So um, he's got examples of his work and his father-in-law knows a lot of people in that area. That's where Josephine was raised. Although I always thought it was interesting that Emily later said she was from Baltimore, um, you know, the first five years of her life. Yes. But then they moved to Wilkes-Barre and most of her childhood was not spent in Baltimore, you know, as a resident. But Baltimore's nicer than saying Wilkes-Barre, I guess.
1: Is it more genteel?
0: I think so. Yeah. Well, you know, her family was in the coal business, you know, the early, early ancestors were digging it themselves. So they weren't like, uh, polished and proper. They were actually for the amount of money that they had, they lived fairly simply.
1: Well, fairly. Yeah. (laughs) It's a matter of relative,
0: uh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like
1: instead of sending off to worth for the dresses, they hired local seamstresses, but nonetheless, they bought the same amount of clothes, like that kind of economy. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. That's
0: yeah. But even their houses were not always these
1: super opulent, you know, they were mansions,
0: but they weren't like super opulent.
1: Honestly, I think simplicity equals old money too. And so maybe intuitively, they were kind of emulating the actual best people. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yes. No, I totally get that.
1: Okay. So. Here's Papa building a reputation and a catalog, and it helped. It helped through his whole life. In fact, that he was ferociously handsome and tall and charming—that <laughs> never hurts, does it? So Emily, her—the um, only real famous story of her very young childhood—it's uh, not an awesome one. It's kind of a bratty story. It is, yeah. Uh, she was irritated that she was given an admittedly elaborate toy size real china tea set for christmas where a boy relative got a very exciting toy train set and emily was so mad at i don't know gender betrayal like that sucks why do i have to have a tea set and he gets to have a car and she went outside and smashed it in the koi pond (laughs) wow i wonder what older emily post would say about that well i don't know what are you gonna do honestly a tea set like that probably costs more than her nanny made all year I know. Uh, Not good. Well, here's a better story. Want to hear a better one? Yes. Sure. She'd hang around Papa when he was working at home, and he thought it was so freaking delightful that he got a little drafting table to scale, of course. He's an architect. And tools made to scale, of course, (laughs) made just for her and let her, quote, work with him when he was working at home, which I thought was very, very adorable.
0: That was. And you know what I liked about the family, too, is that... At this point, Bruce is getting commissions like everywhere. You know, if if the, he has to go build some houses in Bar Harbor, Maine, which was a very Tony resort area at the time, the family would follow him. So that was kind of nice, I thought.
1: Well, and not only did the family follow, he literally took little Emily on site to client meetings as his assistant. I mean, mm-hmm. can you just see her with a little clipboard? Here's the thing. Clients might have thought it was weird. What are you going to say? Like, under your breath, to your friend here at work, do you know who his father-in-law is? Yeah. (laughs) Like, you're not going to say anything, even though it's supremely eccentric to have a five, six, seven-year-old girl at your client meeting. But, hmm. Well, let's assume
0: she was well-behaved.
1: Yes. Yes. At the very least. And she was interested
0: and she adored the man. So he doted on her and she just followed him happily. Very sweet. And she picked up so much.
1: She had a real talent, I think, for art and practical drawings that Mm -hmm. Papa saw. Well, so Papa was missing the big leagues over in NYC and he decided to move there. And so did Grandma and Grandpa, (laughs) curiously, to the same building. Well, Grandma and
0: Grandpa funded it, so... I guess they could get, you know, half of the town home.
1: For the New Yorkers among you or those of you who like to employ the Google box, it is 12 West 10th Street, still there, right near Parsons School of Design. Make it work. So do you want to hear today's prices for this? Oh, yeah. Lay it on me. (sighs) Oh, gosh. Okay. so there's four units in that building now. And this is super cheap for New York. It seems like $13,000 a month rent. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God! Unit two sold for almost six million dollars a couple of years ago. Aye, <laughs> aye, aye. Ay. Okay, so this is the level, and it you know was probably proportionate back then too. Oh yeah, affordability oh, yeah. wise. Oh, so Papa's taking names, making buildings, and money. Mama's operating in the highest level of society. I'm going to put it this way: Remember episode eight when we talked about Mrs. Vanderbilt's famous society ball that? Shook up old money and new money and NYC, the most desired invitation in the city of New York, the one where you would literally hide behind your sofa for the whole day rather than let someone know you hadn't been invited. Well, Emily's parents were on that list. Mm -hmm. Now, they didn't get to go to that ball, I'm sorry to say, because Grandpapa died and... um, so they didn't go, but I just wanted to kind of illustrate the society in which they were operating. And Emily <laughs> also got to be known in those circuits, too, because half the time an invitation to the prices meant that their increasingly sophisticated 8-, 910 year old daughter came along, too. And I just think only children get exposed to a lot more adult behavior than, I mean, even now. Than- oh, yeah. When I was reading that part, I was actually thinking of your
0: son. Yes. Because... And think about this. We're talking, you know, pre-1900 here. They were very progressive parents. But that's still considered a little bit progressive in, you know, 2017, right? Right. Because if it's a barbecue or something like that, you know, the kids would go. But not to these type of parties that Emily was accompanying her parents to.
1: So a lot of times I think what you learn as a child gets in deeper than anything else. And so here she is studying architecture and observing manners of best society. How about that for a practical education? So speaking of education, at the age of 11, Emily began attending the Graham School, which she refers to as the Mrs. Graham School for young ladies.
0: Like M-I-S-S-E-S.
1: Jenny Jerome Churchill went to school there. You know, this is for society girls. It's for them to polish themselves up. So, yes, if you want to read about Jenny Jerome, who attended, you know, 20 years
0: before. Winston and Emily were born like a year apart.
1: Winston Churchill. So
0: Jenny was of her mother's generation. Episode
1: 10. Episode 10. You know, I have those all
0: doubted through my notes because this woman, you know, like we talk about the Chicago World's Fair a lot because it intersects a lot of our episodes. She intersected so many. It blew my mind.
1: This place, the Mrs. Graham School, reminds me of Wellesley in Mona Lisa's Smile. Like, you were from a good family if you got there. You were expected to learn your French or whatever lessons you were set. But if social things came up, obviously, you need to take care of those first. That's your future, after all. You know? Mm Mm-hmm. Many of her social absences were what you'd expect. Family visits, going to attend someone's coming-out tea... Emily Price did a lot of makeup schoolwork on the train, let's just say, but she had a -a one-of-a-kind experience when she was 11. A friend of her father's, who she called Uncle Frank, you know, like those family friends that the kids call uncle, he wasn't really her uncle. Frank Hopkinson Smith, he's the man who was to build the base for the new Statue of Liberty. And he adored Emily as much as
0: she did him. So guess who else got to go along on those, you know, canvassing trips? She'd like put her out in his tugboat and check out the base as it was being built. And she was like the princess. That was her playhouse was the base of the Statue of Liberty while it was being built. Remember that the next time you go visit the Statue of Liberty and imagine just this little
1: kid just running around with a bow in her hair and playing princess. The statue itself in pieces, particularly the hand with the torch, had been on display in New York in a park for five or six years. So the statue just didn't have a place to sit. And it was due to the efforts of lots and lots of very small donations and a few society ladies and men Um, providing large donations that finally got the base built. It was super embarrassing to have this giant present and you didn't have anywhere to put it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, especially one so impressive.
1: There's plenty of pictures of the disembodied hand sitting in a park. We'll have to give you a picture of that. It's a pretty interesting little uh, little field trip to take. And I think at the time you could just trot around in the torch too. I've been in the crown. I didn't, the the torch was closed. No, I mean while it was sitting on the ground. Oh, I see. Yeah. So Papa, sadly, told her over and over and over during her formative years that it was just too bad she hadn't been a boy or she could have followed him into the business. That killed me.
0: I mean, for a progressive parent to say that. And at the time, as she got older, women were starting to become architects, but Bruce probably didn't know any of them yet. So that's all he knew. It's Like, it's a thing for men. Sorry.
1: Also, compounding this problem, Mama and her peer group hated what they called blue stockings. Women's rights activists, I mean, so tacky to insist on things and be loud. We have everything we need. Why do we have to rock the boat?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: This is the women's sphere. We are occupying it quite nicely. And of course, you know what? Those women were insulated from the harsher realities of female life, I suppose.
0: Oh, yeah. And later on, some of them would start to peel off as leaders of the movement. But at this particular time, it was like, oh, no, that's not our type, dear. Well,
1: and how many times have we said during the course of this podcast that it is a papa's encouragement that mm-hmm. his daughter could accomplish whatever it was? It's, it's a crucial element. And we didn't have that support. Quite the opposite. It was this all was a placeholder until she dropped into her proper place As a wife and mother and society matron, and Emily just wasn't a rebellious or determined personality. Not yet. She wasn't.
0: Although throwing those teacups into the koi pond
1: (laughs) might have been a little indicator. (laughs) Maybe that was before she was crushed, because I think she was only four. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I see. So what are we doing? We're vacationing in Newport. Of course, we are at our relatives' houses. We're becoming the absolute belle of the neighborhood in an exclusive neighborhood called Tuxedo Park during everyone else's awkward years. I mean, how do I describe Tuxedo Park? It's, you know, Newport in the forest, I guess. (laughs) Well, it's about 45 miles north of New York City.
0: And his I think it was his cousin, Pierre Lorillard, and Bruce went up one day on a train before there was even a train stop, hopped off the train while it was moving, grabbed a ride on a passing farmer's cart and went and looked at, at Pierre's property. And this acreage that he had, had three lakes on it. And it was a hunter's paradise. And his one of his girlfriends had suggested that it would make a great place for the society people of new york to escape to on the weekends kind of a disneyland ish that's of course not her term um kind of a disneyland-ish hunting lodge except you know lots of houses that are really really pretty and bruce kind of looked around he's like yeah we can do that so pierre gave him the money and bruce did it i mean it opened within a year
1: so it's a gated community of the super wealthy and connected um, reminds me a little bit in its naivete with Marie Antoinette's hamo, like her playtime farm. This Mm -hmm. is a playtime forest. They hired actors to walk around looking like gamekeepers, that kind of thing. (laughs) Mm Yeah. Yeah. And Papa designed a lot of the cottages himself, and these things might be giant and include lots of servant quarters, but they, at least his houses, the original ones, um, were designed especially to fit within the environment. A lot of them seemed very, how do I say, Tyrolean, very alpine in mm-hmm. nature. Um,
0: Unpainted, they were just, you know, shakes on the side.
1: Yeah, they were really
0: charming, but they weren't like, when you think of a cottage, you think of you know, two bedrooms and a great room, right? But these places were like five bedrooms plus room for the servants kind of thing. Not exactly a cottage. So which came first, the community or the jacket? Tuxedo? Well, let's just say the community was named after one of its lakes, Tuxedo. So the name of the jacket came from this town, this park, this village that was developed by, in part, by Bruce Price.
1: Although, in a twist of irony, nobody in, quote, best society would ever call that a tuxedo. It is a dinner jacket. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Hilarious. I don't know. I don't, I can't even unpack how that happened. (laughs) (laughs) Emily loved the stage. Loved it. Loved it. Of course, amateur theatricals have played a giant part in society from way back, And she was super good at acting and got a little bit of the acting bug, but some very unfortunate and immoral behavior among people's, I'm not going to get into it too much, people's extracurricular activities. (laughs) Sure, you can say it. Pierre's
0: girlfriend, you know, the same one that had the great idea and was kind of whitewashed out of the story of Tuxedo Park. Yeah, her and somebody else.
1: Well, all of that caused Mama and Papa to say, all right, obviously the stage is not the place for an innocent and impressionable young girl and forbade her the stage entirely. So there is one dream crushed. And as she got older, her ambitions and her interest in architecture were frustrated too. So instead of being able to go with her father to his projects anymore... She was her mother's project, herself. Emily's debut approached. Approached, you know, I'm talking years of dancing classes and deportment classes. I have to tell you my son's friends, they're 12 and 13, are all going to Cotillion this year. Oh, really? My child's not going to Cotillion. (laughs) I'm like, what would he wear? (laughs) I don't know. I just think that's very interesting. So maybe we are... um, best people adjacent i don't know maybe
0: Maybe. we just chose
1: the right summer camp but anyway (laughs) um so um wardrobe consultations and fittings there's proper women's work for the gilded age her peer group thought, right? That occupied uh, her whole day. Well, she was very good at it. She designed her dresses and then, you know, they
0: sent the designs off to, you know, someone to make it.
1: Also at this time, as if to burnish her image, she inherited a large fortune from a cousin of her father's. So now she's even more eligible. Seems kind of gross, really.
0: <laughs> I know, right? But she's beautiful. She's tall, actually, in dark hair very fair skin. Um, She stands very straight, which seems kind of not what, I don't know, she seemed to me like a little rebellious. So I'm wondering why that, you know, posture thing stuck, I
1: guess. Well, I think that she's decided, okay, is this what I'm supposed to be good at? Then I will study how to do it and I will be good at it. That's a pattern that she has her whole life.
0: That's true. That's very true. Okay. I'm more comfortable with that. Yeah, like because it's an answer.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Are these the rules then done? Check. She loved a list of things to check off this girl.
0: Oh, Emily wrote down everything, you know, just what she wore, how it was received, um, you know, what trims she might have added to a dress. She wrote down what she did, you know, blow by blows of the day and just like bullet point form, not like, you know. Not sentences or anything, but just how the day went and observations that she had. And
1: She always maintained that she didn't keep a diary.
0: Don't you dare call these books that I'm writing my daily minutiae in journals.
1: I don't know. (laughs) What do you call it then? A bullet journal.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. But it's a journal. You can't call it a journal because that sounds like flowery and romantic. Oh, he looked at me, but she did keep track of, you know, who she danced with.
1: And did that particular dress garner the exact degree of attention she thought it would? Oh, no. Curiously, a failure, and here are the reasons why. Blah, blah, and blah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So I don't know. I don't even know what to call that. Analysis, I guess.
0: Okay. Oh, yes. I like it.
1: So Emily was, as you probably could have predicted, a great success at her actual debut held at Delmonico's. She was 17 years old. She caught everyone's eye, um, especially while dancing by one young man by the name of Edwin Post. And she really, after this debut, seemed well positioned to take the whole of society by storm at her debutante year. And then she sort of stepped away way, I guess. Um she would show up for the major dances, but she was working again with her father for the whole next year. And I can see the scale going down on that side. Like, you know, any good support in that direction. And we could have had architect Emily Price. I
0: know. I keep thinking that when she compared these young men who were, you know, trying to get her attention to her father, they just paled. So why spend her time with them? She knew she could get her husband whenever she needed him, but she could spend time with her father and she could be learning and being with a real man, you know, that was, that's how I kind of viewed it.
1: It's kind of agonizing to me. I'm just not sure what's happening. Like the next year, back she is, you know, she's in the thick of society and with her favorite escort, one Edwin Post, just like before, but you know, I... How much did anybody know about each other before they got married? That's her main beau. I would say they are unofficially engaged at this point. Um, he ran in the same circles as Emily and her parents. I think he was even older. Um, yeah, his family was established on um, in
0: Long Island on the shore. And they like held court at their commune out there. So yeah, his family line goes way back too. Although the
1: Mayflower... I know. (laughs) Well, Edwin's money was his mother's. His father was this man who was kind of on the brink of bankruptcy, not the best mm, at making decisions and choices. Edwin himself had an income made from scooping up foreclosed property and reselling it. Which, of course, did bring in significant money, but it felt kind of gross to Emily's father. And I get this feeling that he he and Emily's dad never did get along. Like, maybe he was a little Eddie Haskell, kind of like the dad never thought that he was worthy of his daughter, which he probably wouldn't have thought of the best of guys. But this is not the best of guys.
0: Right. Yeah. That's kind of how I viewed it. It was like, this is who you're choosing? Really? You have all that? All right, I'll try to be supportive, but in my heart, I know that this guy is not for you. But
1: Well, he was blonde and handsome and charming, and Emily felt that she was in love, I guess, and she got engaged to Edwin Post in the spring of 1891 when she was 18. So the goal of all upper-class women of her set had been achieved, right? And you can just cross it off, I guess. Emily later wrote, That women were expected to live up to their family's expectations of them in this regard. Personal choice was not as important as living up to their ideal. Mm -hmm. And that's probably what Bruce was holding on to. He's like, this is tradition. She has
0: to marry someone who's on paper is the match for her. And on paper, he kind of is. But, you know, Bruce was a man of the world. He knew what people were really like.
1: Well, the train was leaving that station. I will tell you, even though the and groom really had nothing in common, even though Papa and Emily's new mother-in-law practically had steam coming out of their ears every time they met. I know from the first meeting. Did
0: you look up any pictures of her? I'll try to get some that I can that I can post. She looked mean.
1: (laughs) She reminds me of Alva Vanderbilt. Yeah. Pugnacious.
0: Okay. sure. Let's go with that word.
1: 22-year-old Edwin Post and 19-year-old Emily Bruce Price were married in Tuxedo Park on June 1st of 1892, since May was considered unlucky for some reason.
0: Yeah. And they were married outside. Um, It was a heat wave. It was like 90 degrees. They got married by the lake. She's in this gown that she had designed herself, and they sent the designs away to Worth's of Paris. And it came in just a couple days before the wedding. Um, but it was so many layers of fabric that it got ruined because she was just sweating so much in it, but you had to appear calm and cool, right? (laughs) Can you imagine trying to do that at your wedding? You're just dying of heat. You just want to go sit naked in a nice, you know, a tub of ice water.
1: I have a feeling based on the fashions of the day that you really spent all of almost every day wishing you could take your corset off. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. This
0: is probably a good time to take a break, and when we come back, we'll find out what life is like for Mrs. Emily Post. we are back. Emily and Edwin are now married, but thanks to a cholera epidemic in Europe, their plans for their grand tour were derailed and they had to go south. Let's go visit Emily's family. And they visited Savannah, Georgia, Charleston, South Carolina, and of course, Baltimore. But it sounds like the honeymoon was kind of an example of what the whole marriage was going to be like. Emily did what was expected of her. And Edwin did whatever the heck he wanted. <laughs> and I
1: think that the the family was polite to him, but he didn't fit in. Like, they were bewildered by her choice, kind of. Like, he was not at all what they had expected she would bring down there.
0: No, no. It was Side Eye City down in Baltimore. I know. Well, Can you just imagine, like, all these, you know, southern women sitting around a table, and they're like, oh, your Edwin seems so, so, so charming sip look at the other ladies to see if they could understand what you
1: were saying <laughs> like what else can i say
0: he cuts a fine figure
1: <laughs> he sure does like to eat turtles
0: everybody like to eat turtles
1: well there you go he's one of us right
0: that's right except he liked to catch them too this guy was like a big hunter and fisher like the life at tuxedo to him he hated it because it was so not real sportsman like You know, it was genteel sportsmen. It was like gentlemen farmers versus the real things.
1: He thought it was fake. He thought the whole thing was a facade. And it was a facade, but he (laughs) thought that was ridiculous.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah.
1: So it was a mismatch from the beginning. But anyway, so this alternate honeymoon didn't exactly lead to a honeymoon baby, but almost so soon after they were married, Emily was pregnant with no time to adjust to each other. Really. I always feel like we did the right thing. We waited 12 years to have our one and only like we got a chance to be us for a while. I mean, Mm -hmm. it can work no matter what. But I just think so many times that had we had a baby within a year of getting married, we would not be the same. We would not have had a chance to cement us before we had to become something else.
0: Yeah, we waited five years. But yeah, no, I totally agree with you because you had a time to establish yourself as a couple. They could have used that time.
1: Well, they sure didn't have it. And I really do think in Emily's case, it might have helped because I think what Edwin wanted was a delightful, entertaining trophy wife. I mean, she, no, this all started with Consuelo Isnaga, the whole Mm -hmm. playing the banjo as society when she did it back in the 1870s. It was shocking. And what the heck? Whoever ever heard of a banjo playing? That's ridiculous. Well, now, in Emily Post time, 20 years later, oh, how things have changed. Playing the banjo was a mark of a witty society girl. And Emily was very, very good at it. I mean, she was renowned within the social circles for
0: being such a magnificent banjo player.
1: So, oh, how times have changed. I think we might owe a little bit of an apology to society to Consuelo Isnaga, who became, in fact, the Duchess of Manchester, so... She might have gotten the last word there, but isn't it funny? The vanguard always gets made fun of and then... Yep. So speaking of vanguard, Emily, she did entertain and was a popular hostess for that very brief period, uh, maybe up to month five. (laughs) Yeah. When her condition was not so apparent, but much to the bewilderment of pretty much everyone in society... Here's the vanguard, Emily and Edwin moved to Staten Island. Who moved to Staten Island?
0: (laughs) You're just having a baby. You're just, you know, coming into this thing that you've worked your whole life to do. You know, in society, your position, you're there and you're going to move out to Staten Island. The thing is,
1: some of her Southern relatives had settled there and she really liked the lower pressure social situation. She was just exhausted, you know, keeping up your rank in Manhattan and keeping up your royal reputation in Tuxedo Park. And this, in contrast, was so simple. Only six servants, you know. (laughs) Sometimes people have no sense of perspective, but I will say that Staten Island became quite the popular place later, so Emily is a big trendsetter. Well, of course she is. So Emily's marriage was already sort of unraveling, even before the birth of her first child. It was almost as if... I'm wondering about this, this whole move to Staten Island, almost as if Emily had reached the finish line in her race, you know, the race to get married respectively. And mm-hmm. then she wanted to take a break. Right when Edwin was all fired up to get money and fame and party it up. And honestly, to be in his early 20s. Yeah. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> Make just, his own
0: mistakes, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. And I just think timing um, was not good. I mean, it was like the only thing that
0: she and Edwin kind of meshed on is that they both wanted him to succeed. And her job as his wife was to throw all those parties that have the right people at them so there can be business brewing for her husband and that she could appear as, you know, the epitome of society. And so don't you want to employ my husband? He's so smart. That's all she did. That was all they did together. So um, moving out to Staten Island kind of curtailed that activity just a little bit.
1: Well, their first child, Ned, was born a year and a day after their wedding day. Their second child, Bruce, was born about two and a half years later, and their marriage was disappointing, I guess is the kindest word I'd say. Emily worked hard to meet expectations of being the perfect hostess, and former debutante carried a lot of responsibility, perfect mother, society lady, and Edwin sort of seemed to want... Um distance he wanted to spend time at his clubs, on his boat, anywhere but at home, yeah,
0: he spent every free moment out with his buddies, fishing or duck hunting. I think is the thing they like to do the most. but yeah, he was on a boat. he was a boaty guy, and guess what? Emily was not a boaty woman at all. There were boaty women; she just wasn't one of them,
1: and I wonder if it was super convenient. I mean, like she wouldn't want to be here, so I'm going to be here, yeah. Ah, that's kind of a bummer. I just want to put in an event here. (laughs) Uh, It doesn't really go with the flow of Emily's story necessarily, although there is an Emily element. The social event of 1895 happened just about now. Consuelo Vanderbilt's wedding to the Duke of Marlborough, the social event of the century. This is the biggest wedding covered in all the papers. Um, Consuelo's Abject reluctance to marry her really substandard groom personality and personally speaking was kind of the talk of the town. And one of Consuelo's bridesmaids was Edwin's cousin, Daisy Post. Cousin of the bride, too. You know, we're all cousins once you get to this level of society, I think. <laughs> but she came to Tuxedo Park and told everyone all about it. She has got backstage passes to the event of the century. This wedding and those like it made quite an impression on me, too. (laughs) Me, too, Emily. (laughs) Evidently, that is uh, what started this podcast, what started Downton Abbey. And you know what? I bet that was better for her because she didn't have to actually be there, but she still got the good scoop. And I think she didn't go because she was pregnant.
0: Yeah, entirely possible. Because in 1893, when their first child was born... What else was going on? There was a thing in Chicago. It was, uh, yeah. So Emily and uh, Edwin couldn't go, obviously. They had a newborn, but her parents could, and they
1: did. They went to the Columbian Exposition, the Chicago World's Fair of 1893. I think anyone alive and not, you know, pregnant uh, was probably (laughs) headed to that World's Fair. I think so, too. The family moved back to Manhattan. Uh, It was time. A house that is now a Goodwill store (laughs) on the ground floor. (laughs) How the money (laughs) happened. I know. I looked that up. I'm like, is that real? Yep. As the years passed, the couple really did lead completely separate lives. I mean, they'd meet to host dinners or make an appearance at an event, but really had so little in common. Edwin would never ever never ever match up to Emily's ideal man someone like her father it has to be said who she idolized you know creative and charming and hardworking and appreciative of her and respectful of her intelligence he's never gonna be that and he's never gonna change and there were rumors of quote actresses of financial speculation, dubious business practices, none of the news was good. I will tell you, don't get me wrong, Emily was not sitting home. She'd been somebody with a capital S before she was even married, and her circle of women friends was bigger than ever. She went to Mark Twain's 70th birthday party. I love that. Emily even traveled to Europe without her husband. She went with a friend, and her friends I have to say, boyfriend. I can't really figure out what it is. It's like I think he was her
0: fiance at the time. I think they were engaged, but Emily was the chaperone.
1: Okay. I bet she was very effective. (laughs) turning a blind eye because these are grown women at this time, but whatever. So Emily wrote a lot of letters back to her parents that described everything and everyone she was seeing, and they kept them, and they read them over and over and read them to their friends. And she was having quite an adventure, but it all kind of came to a halt when she got a telegram from
0: her mother-in-law. Edwin was very sick, so... Emily rushed back as fast as she could from Europe. And the bottom line was he wasn't sick. He just wanted to, quote, surprise Emily with his new 129-foot schooner. And what a great adventure. We're going to go race it in Newport this weekend. That weekend voting trip actually proved to her how much of a non-voter she really was. There was no question about it. She was miserable the entire time.
1: And had he been sick at all? Or was this all just some ridiculous, like, inconveniencing her purposely thing?
0: Yeah, he started to get, like, jealous that she was doing things that he would not approve of, which he was probably doing himself. So, um, <laughs> yeah, no, it was all a ruse. Dirtbag. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, the real man in her life, her father, and old Uncle Frank, he of the base of the Statue of Liberty, encouraged Emily to publish those letters that she had written back as a book. And even Mama, not the most supportive of her daughter's writing endeavors, frankly, even Mama swore those letters are better than this ridiculous bestseller she'd been trying to slog through. They're way better than this book that's actually been published, so you might as well, kind of. And so, unfortunately, against the backdrop of her father's battle with terminal stomach cancer, which is the downside of this period, Emily worked against the clock, you might even say, to turn those letters into her first novel. She wanted to please her father. She wanted him to be proud of her. But Papa died before he could read it. And Emily was really Really rocked at her hero's death. And of course, her husband was really no comfort at all.
0: No, not at all. And you know, we think of Bruce, he was only 57, which to us doesn't seem all that old. But in these pictures, he looks like a grandpa, which is what he was, but kind of shocking to me that he was that young. I'm still going to call it young because I'm way too close to that number.
1: <laughs> no, it is. It is very young. A year after her papa died, Flight of a Moth came out, and it was sort of autobiographical. Uh, although in the book, funnily, the early married husband drops dead in the fictional work. Is that wishful thinking? <laughs> 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 I don't know. Anyway, um, I think this is the one where she said it would be best for a woman to be born a widow because widows I think are the is. freest of the female sex or something. Well, um, anyway, it sold really reasonably well for a first novel, and Emily was on her way. She started to work on her second one. But Edwin was starting to let the side down, as they say. So there's no more polite fiction for him. He stopped showing up at social events with her, which is really beyond the pale. You got to keep up appearances, right? Even if everybody knows you have the actresses and the mistresses, as long as you guys keep the united front, nobody's going to say anything. But he was no longer doing that. He Wasted her money, her money, in fact, on an increasingly sketchy business deal or two and more and more openly flaunted his affairs. You know, there was talk, but not in front of Emily. Who knew the score, I guess? You know, humiliating. As a twist, he did have to sell his sailboat. He was doing so poorly
0: business wise.
1: So, ha. The universe has spoken.
0: That's right. And that it wasn't a huge chunk of time here either. He only had that boat that he had been dreaming about his whole life for a very short period of time.
1: Well, everything blew up. Emily was 32 when her husband was involved in a blackmail scandal involving a gossip newspaper called Town Topics, who threatened to publish an article which included the words about him keeping an apartment in Stanford, Connecticut, where he, quote, entertained a fair charmer who favored white shoes with red heels and patent leather toes. Hmm. (laughs) Those sound like it was you? No. (laughs) (laughs) It was not me. Rather than pay $500 to keep his affair out of the paper... He informed his wife that he was going to set up a sting operation with the police and shut this action down. And the resulting drama got plastered all over the other papers, the respectable papers.
0: Oh, it was so humiliating for Emily. She had to fake standing by her man. There was a criminal trial. She had to hear all the ugly stuff. And she had to sit there supporting her husband saying, you know, he was doing this for society. He was making society better.
1: I wonder what it cost her. I do. Oh, bad timing. Her second book came out right now. And it was another kind of homage to her own marriage. In fact, as she wished it would have been. It's so awkward. I know. <laughs> Here's the only silver lining here. Yes, divorce was scandalous. But you know what? How much more scandalous could this thing get than what she'd just been through? So you might as well, you know, And so Emily and Edwin divorced um, nominally over yet another actress who had been (laughs) tracked in her movements. Uh, They were divorced in 1906. It was done.
0: Yeah. And it wasn't really done as quickly as it could have been. There was some changes in the laws at that time. And the U.S. government was trying to make a universal divorce law. So they needed to look at examples of what was happening in states. So they were trying to collect up all these sealed divorce documents and go through all the information in them and find out, you know, what was happening in these marriages that they crumbled. And so one of their friends who was an attorney was like, you might want to hold off unless you want that information out somewhere somewhere where you don't know where it is. So they had to wait almost a year For that to get resolved before they could proceed with their divorce.
1: And as a side note, her lawyer was an old friend. In fact, the man she'd been dancing with when she met Edwin Post, an old friend of the family named Phoenix Ingraham, who always thought she was his ideal woman and always kind of in the back of his mind wanted to pursue Emily, never really was secure enough to do it and lost out because she friend zoned him from the beginning.
0: Yeah, it did. not Even that that original story, you know, about them dancing when she spotted Edwin spotting her. Um, it might not be true because Phoenix was younger. He was like four years younger than she was. Right. There's yeah. So there's a little, you know, cloud of mystery over whether that was the guy she was dancing with or not. But that's the one she claimed. So, you know, it might be one of those situations of family lore merging with fact and getting a little blurry.
1: And also wanting to put a guy named Phoenix into your story. I know. <laughs> as many times as possible. <laughs> so I love it. I love it. So Emily's free at last, free at last. And so she wrote some more novels. Uh, the first one out of the gate was this, Ah, uh, what's the word? Cockamamie is the word <laughs> I'm going to use. It's this mystical one about the occult called Woven in the Tapestry. Just say no. Just say no. Yeah, Don't know. Um, one I do like. Called the title market, sort of based on really the same stories that started this podcast, mm-hmm. sort of stories like Consuelo Vanderbilts, many of which ended up more happily than consuelo's um Emily Post knew these women, that's the thing, or at least their relatives and friends personally, so imagine that, yeah, and she had the uh,
0: perspective of a woman who was that kind of person. And then did get married, not to royalty, but to an American. And what happened to that marriage? So she was kind of looking at it through the eyes of a divorcee. But she still came out at the end. It was kind of like, you know, if you're going to marry for titles, you know, if you're going to trade cash for class, know what you're getting into. If you get into it with your eyes open and you're ready for all of the realities of it, then do it. Otherwise, you know, marry an American. But there's pros and cons to both. So she was being very fair, I thought. Yeah, and this was her
1: best-selling novel,
0: actually, The title Market.
1: Well, she had a lucrative sideline writing short pieces about these marriages for a magazine called Everybody's Magazine. And she had a good sideline making scale models of buildings for her father's architect friends.
0: I know. This is like this side gig. She couldn't have been doing that unless she had followed him around all those years.
1: Well, she was independent and she was creative Mm -hmm. and she was happy. I think this period of her life was surprisingly rewarding. It's almost like she's one of those lions that got let out of the circus cage and she's feeling grass under her feet for the first time.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. She isn't doing what is expected of her. She's, you know, making her own plans. So, yeah. Very exciting.
1: So, Mama died suddenly. In a horrible car accident that I am not even going to describe.
0: I was trying to write it like in my notes to make it as nice as possible. But let's just go with the wheel of their car went off the road and then the car did too.
1: Emily was left secure financially, but bereft really as to family. Her two sons were now at boarding school. And Emily really concentrated harder than ever on her writing. That's always been her solace in times of trouble is work, work, work. Mm -hmm. One series in particular sparked something in her. It was a series called Letters of a Worldly Godmother that she had written for the Delineator. These are some pieces where she gave advice to people and she thought, I love this. This is okay. This is good. And she asked her agent if he wouldn't try to pitch something like this for her to another magazine or two. Too lowly, too boring, said her agent. Like, you're not going to want to talk about finger bowls with people, are you? That's dumb. And he's like, Well, I pitched it to Ladies Home Journal, but they already hired somebody. That's fine. You don't want that anyway, right? Ironically. So she asked for it. Yes. And he told her, Who cares? Write another novel, which reminds me of Josephine Cochran again, having to battle through a series of years where people didn't believe she knew what was best for her until she finally got her design approved. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what happened to Emily Post. She kind of knew the direction she wanted her career to go, and men and publishers told her that's not what you really want for years. I, I think that in some ways is, happens with most all of the women we talk about.
0: Somebody's saying, no, 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 little girl, go back to the kitchen, kind of, you know.
1: Well, when Emily was 42, she and her sons concocted a scheme. Hey, why don't we drive all over Europe together? And Ned ordered, this cracks me up, a convertible Mercedes with this half roof, and I want to say a red interior and black exterior. (laughs) And one estimate said that this car costs over $100,000 in today's money. Well,
0: if you're going to travel all over Europe by car, that's kind of the way to do it. And quite honestly, I think that's the only way Emily got Ned to go on board because he was in college at the time. You know, he was old enough to say no to his mom, but when she dangled that car in front of him. He just couldn't refuse it.
1: Yeah, let's do that, Mom. That'll be great. So unfortunately, they didn't make it far into France before rumors of war started circling around them. It was 1914. And in case we are lax on our World War One history, August 1914 was the official start of war in France. So their super expensive German car was giving them a suspicious reception. <laughs> To the point where Ned tied this stuffed dog to the hood with a sign around its neck saying, I eat Germans. <laughs> Hardy, har, har. Oh, when they got to the docks to take the car home,
0: take the car and themselves home. The French were um, confiscating all vehicles for the war effort. And Emily was really fast thinking and kind of conned a dock worker to say, no, this car's fine. You can put this one on the boat. And it It worked. She got her car over while all the rest of France was having their cars, you know, impounded by the government. Go, Emily.
1: I read that Ned did it himself and maybe with some folded pieces of paper with dollar signs on them. Oh, really? Oh, there's another version. Okay, I didn't see that one. Oh, well, you know, he was more vested in that car, I think, than anyone
0: (laughs) else. That's true.
1: (laughs) So when they got back, Ned wrote... And had published some travelogues about their adventures, which inspired Emily to ask, get this, her friend Frank Crowninshield, a name we also encountered in the Dorothy Parker podcast, a publisher, that she was meeting at dinner. This is like, it's all who you know, isn't it? I mean, and just stop for a second and think about
0: it. About this time is when Dorothy Parker is starting her career, right? So... Dorothy Parker, you think in your mind, this, you know, modern 20s, jazz age woman. And then you think of Emily Post as being this Victorian era. And that wasn't the case. They were doing the same thing at the same time with the same guy, which sounds a lot better than it really was intended. (laughs) Badder. (laughs) Badder.
1: So Frank Crown and Shield, can I drive across this country, the good old US of A, writing my account of my travels? Uh okay. Let me let me ask around, he says. Okay, okay, I got a deal for you. My friend Conde Nast let's just My friend, Conde Nast, come Mm -hmm. on, uh, has a little magazine called Colliers, and he wants you to go ahead and visit the two World's Fairs in California from New York. Mm -hmm. You you have your assignment. And she and Ned and her cousin, her cousin-in-law, Alice Post.
0: Right. I liked how she didn't ever talk to Edwin ever again, but she kept some of his relatives. You know, in the divorce, she got a couple of them, including (laughs) Alice. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's funny. Well, they took off on their 45-day journey, and um, the book that she wrote about it, By Motor to the Golden Gate, really did not become a hit because the timing was very off. The war for America had begun by the time it came out. But it is a great vignette for us today as to how things were. A lot of the coverage of Middle America didn't go over very well.
0: (laughs) Really, no. No.
1: Every single book that
0: she was doing was, you know, not doing as well. So she thought, well, I'll switch to nonfiction. But even then, they were published as serials and magazines and then were bought by publishing houses to be put into novel form. Right. So people were able to follow her across the country, kind of like Nellie Bly. um, Episode 20. I have to say Emily packed a whole lot more stuff than Nellie did. (laughs) Well, and that was only 16 years before. You know, and Nellie did her thing. She went around the world with just that little cute travel bag.
1: Well, and there was a major highway built the year before Emily took off, which helped a lot. Nellie Bly had to rely on the railroad for the most part, Mm -hmm. um, at least across the United States, whereas Emily could just take off. Now, did you get stuck in the mud? Yes, you did. Did you have to learn how to change a tire? That's what Ned's for. (laughs) Um, you know, it's not like the roads were super awesome. If it rained, you pretty much had to wait around if you didn't wish to get stuck. But here's the thing. For Emily herself, I think that the exposure to so many ways of life after, you know, she's been the lap of luxury lady and is coasted her whole entire life. And I think for her personal development, if not her purse and her <sighs> reputation, this was a really good trip.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you completely.
1: So the war, the war, inevitably America got involved and both of Emily's sons enlisted.
0: At the beginning when they enlisted, she was kind of traveling all over to be near where they were in training. <laughs> she was, So Ned was learning to be a pilot and she was kind of helicoptering the whole thing.
1: And I also think he was super sick of it, but didn't say anything.
0: I know he was a good boy. And Bruce, um, he was... Stationed down on the Mexico border because there was a whole other war going on down there. The uh, Mexican border war. And that was what he was involved in while Ned went overseas. And he was the first pilot to get an award during uh, World War One, first First U.S. pilot.
1: See, you done good. Emily spent her time with the Red Cross and selling Liberty Bonds and participating in charities begun by her friend Edith Wharton. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> and I am very happy to say that both sons made it back, which is not always the case. And nobody died of the Spanish flu. What I know. Frank Crowninshield, now the editor of Vanity Fair, brought up the idea of Emily Post writing an etiquette book. They're at another dinner, by the way. You know, look, he said, when she seemed kind of reluctant, all of these newlyweds, husbands just back from the war, everybody's anxious to get it right. There's all these new immigrants to our country. All these country folk are now moving into the cities to work in the industry. We know who's going to help them. And Emily looked around at what was being published about etiquette and thought she could definitely do better, frankly. And she got fully invested in this book. Her outline covered a whole wall of thumbtacked cards in her workroom. I think a lot of authors work that way, actually. Mm -hmm. She asked around at dinner parties and events for this kind of consensus among her peer group. Yeah. She put two years of research into this
0: book. This was something that she'd wanted to do years before. She was uniquely qualified for this particular job. Um, She still threw a lot of research behind what she did.
1: So what is etiquette exactly? I just wanted to read you the dictionary definition. It is... The customary code of polite behavior in society or among members of a particular profession or group. And after all of her years of writing by hand to get that (laughs) first edition ready for publication, 627 pages printed. It came out a simple blue-covered hardback with etiquette in letters on the front by Emily Post. And inside the title page, it read, Etiquette in Society in business, in politics, and at home. Later editions simplified the inner page to simply read the Blue Book of Social Usage. Which is so much easier to say. And
0: in that first edition, under her name, because um, it does say, you know, her byline by Emily Post, in parentheses, it says Mrs. Price Post. Oh,
1: yes. But
0: even though she's establishing herself as an expert in, quite frankly, something in the women's sphere She still had to use her married name.
1: Even though Dirtbag had peace outed. Yeah. (laughs) So it was published in July of 1922 when Emily was 50 years old. Hmm. Can we say that again? It was published (laughs) when Emily was 50 years old.
0: All the women of a certain age were all clapping.
1: The publisher was super dubious about the future of a book that had lines in it like... (laughs) get this, it is seldom practical for a debutante and her mother to share a lady's maid. <laughs> yes, you're right. And gave instructions for footmen, for example. Okay. Or the kind of stationary one orders for one's country house. Very plain, very dignified. But surprise, it was an immediate success. They had originally printed only 5,000 of these things. And it went through eight more printings in the 18 months it was on the bestseller list. I think if I had been the woman that the
0: book was written for, you know, somebody who was moving into the city and just kind of touching on the fringes of society and didn't know how they operated, it was like a user's manual. So if you read that, you know, when you get a certain piece of stationery that it's, you know, from their country house and that when you order your own stationery, don't go garish because you'll look tacky, you know? I think it would be great to know those things, that when you go to a house with a footman, what their deal is, even though you don't have one yourself, just to know how they operate and, you know, the customs within that home.
1: I wonder if it was bought as an aspirational thing. I think this was really aimed, although I don't think Emily Post realized this yet, toward the aspirational classes. So for maybe the same reason we watched Downton Abbey, Mm -hmm. to... See how the other half lives, why somebody might take a tour of uh, an estate like Newport or the Breakers. How does it go around there, and how can I incorporate pieces of this into my my life? You know um, and I think she instinctively did a good job of educating by storytelling about the behavior of those in best society, always capitalized, and what they do. She created some characters, the old names, the top lofties, the kind hearts. They always showed you that the best manners were always based on making others comfortable around you, not on (laughs) rules, not on strict formulas, and not as her rich and vulgars or her gildings would do to embarrass or frighten someone or to boast or show you superiority to them.
0: No. She did have a uh, section of the book... uh, which reminded me of you because it was her never say list things like words to use instead of like you wouldn't say residence. You would say house in a sentence or converse versus talk. That actually
1: really, really (laughs) does sound like me. I don't know if I've said this before, but the house versus home thing kills me every time. Realtors, you're selling a house. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Also, you know what? Another thing that gets me purchase rather than buy.
0: Oh, yeah. It was on the list. Yeah. Yep. hmm. Or a, instead of attended use, I went to. Yes. Or uh, this was I love this. I will ascertain. No, no, no. Just say I'll find out.
1: Pinky up was not the way Emily Post said you should do things. Mm-mm. Yeah. We just think of her as being this like
0: strict and proper all the time. But she she was but she was taking into consideration how people actually moved in the world.
1: And her main principle was act in a way that makes the majority of people feel comfortable. The end. hmm Here's some guidelines we can all agree on to make that happen. Yeah. So did she base those characters on people she knew from life? Uh, you can bet that she did because get this dedication. To you, my friends, whose identity in these pages is veiled in fictional disguise, it is but fitting that I dedicate this book. So you really hope... If you were a friend of hers, that you do not see yourself in Mrs. Bobo gilding.
0: That's right. That's right. That's funny.
1: Newspapers began to pay to print excerpts from this book, which, of course, boosted sales. And in today's money, that first edition cost $44. And that's a chunk of money, maybe. But my own here, the 19th edition, is $45 on Amazon. But today it's on sale for $26. Hurry, hurry. I don't know how long that's lasting. Oh,
0: <laughs> that's funny, yeah.
1: But so she
0: had always wanted to have success, and etiquette did it for her, which I think it's really interesting that she wanted to do it so many years before. You know, she wanted to get this started, but she had enough income coming in now that she was able to do more design work, and she bought my favorite—a vacation house in Edgartown on Martha's Vineyard, which is where I hang out for a couple weeks every summer and it is at 34 fuller street it was built in 1778 it is gorgeous it is not owned by the post family anymore so don't be knocking on the door it's not a tourist attraction although you can bet your fanny i'm gonna stand and do a selfie in front of it when i go in a couple weeks (laughs)
1: over the years ticking in the background from now on her advice changes with the times like for example in the 1927 edition a new character was introduced mrs three-in-one who had to be hostess and cook and servant the horror just (laughs) the servantless house was acknowledged and catered to and every single edition changed based on both the changes in society And the thousands of letters Emily received asking different questions than had been in the book. The current edition, for example, has a whole chapter called Life Online. It's perfectly okay, just so you know, to unfriend someone who makes you uncomfortable online. Woo! (laughs) Um, Also, it's perfectly okay to eat asparagus with your fingers if it doesn't have sauce on it. So the more you know. But what happens if you take the cooked
0: asparagus and dip it into the hollandaise sauce?
1: Mm, Gray area. If you have your own little bowl of hollandaise sauce. Yeah, I think we're still thinking fingers. As long as the actual asparagus that you hold has no sauce, I think you're still okay. Okay, good. Then I'm okay. So now get this. While simultaneously maintaining her growing reputation as the etiquette authority, Emily Post designed and had built a residential building at 39 East 79th street in Manhattan, a 15 story building, which she sold units into other members of best society. Now, did she design it alone? No. She worked with a man named Kenneth Murchison. Let's not, I mean, let's not be confident that her first attempt was completely solo. I don't know that you would take the stairs in a building like that. No. (laughs) But, you know, you'll read that it was, by the way, a solo attempt. But in fact, it was a group effort. Um, But still, Papa would be very, very, very proud. The average sale price for one unit in that building now? Any guesses?
0: No idea. Well, in the eight, millions.
1: $8 million. Oh, my Lord. But only, okay, but only because one unit sold for $24 million. Most of them are only 2000000 million. Let's not get crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that you know, I watch House Hunters. I know what
0: houses go for in other parts of this country. That doesn't sound too bad.
1: Oh well, I just like that whole sideline. Emily herself lived in nine B, which looks like it's part of that twenty-four million dollar unit that's combined with the other nine and both of the eights. Ah. I
0: think that would be a great way to live. I have girlfriends and we always joked about, you know, how we would end up in some assisted living together and it would be like being in a dorm. Oh, you know, yeah. We yeah. get we get to relive that atmosphere all over again. So That would be kind of be like this. Only everybody around you, you know, and you like, you don't have the jerky neighbor behind you that builds a fence on property that wasn't his and makes you chop down the tree that your daughter planted when she was eight.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's a little bit of a bitterness behind that story. Dear listeners, (laughs) (laughs) note was taken, speaking of friends, that 100% of the inhabitants of that building were listed in the social register.
0: Well, it wasn't just open to anyone. It was a co-op. They had to be approved. So.
1: Yes. So
0: there you go. This is probably a good time to take another break and we'll find out what this, what, fourth act of Emily's life is like.
1: Back to the work of Emily Post. She had found time to write another novel. This one, called Parade, was about, let's call it, selling your soul for a position in society. But, different than all of her other books, it was marketed as, quote, by the author of etiquette. Her name, Emily Post, was beginning to mean the concept etiquette itself. As in, that's not very Emily Post. <laughs> <laughs> the way band aids are band aids and Kleenex is Kleenex, and in England a biro is an ink pen, although not in the United States, curiously. So she began writing a Q and A column for McCall's magazine about this very subject. Now here is some bad news, some very bad news. Bruce, her younger son, died of a ruptured appendix when Emily was fifty-five years old. He had just been helping her rehab that house in Martha's Vineyard, and they were so enthusiastically working on it. And when he died, she started flapping loose a little, and I certainly don't blame her. And round-the-clock work kind of became her salvation. She began yet another professional sideline of model making, again, for architects and interior design, which everyone agreed that she excelled at. Her taste was perfect, of course. Her manner with her clients was exactly what you would expect from the author of Etiquette. Um, She obsessed about gardening. <laughs> and I, I kind of love that because it so easy to do. I don't know if she used it for a substitute. She used it to fill time. She read about it. She discussed with gardeners and yardmen about it. And she kept another meticulous log of everything she'd planted when it was harvested, including, you know, dates of previous harvests, which reminded me a lot of the, the journals that Thomas Jefferson capped about his garden. Mm-hmm. You know, just the way she did with her daily routine. Not a diary, not a journal. It was a would we call it? An analysis. That's right. A bullet pointed analysis of her life. Well, I think part of that was
0: um, because she and Bruce Jr., baby Bruce, is that what we're calling him? Yeah. Yeah. He, although he's 32 when he died, but um, they were so excited and so invested in this project on, on Martha's Vineyard, you know, redoing this house and making it beautiful and modern. And she just loved it out there. And so for her to take the gardens of that house and just pour over them with as much detail as she would put into her architectural designs or as much research as she did to write etiquette was kind of a way of being with Bruce, I think, because they had that vision. And I I'll have to see when I go out this summer. But the gardens have always been stunning in that house. It's like it was it's a house plunked down in a garden. And not like formal gardens, you know, like Versailles or something. They're very casual cottage gardens.
1: Oh No, it's kind of her homage to Bruce. Right, exactly.
0: And she also started work on a new book about a textbook about architecture and design. Also a way to feel closer to both her father, Bruce, and her son, Bruce.
1: It's called The Personality of a House and... In addition to architecture and line drawings, as you would expect, it also expands on things like color theory, and it is a 500-page book. Her point is, in this book, houses without personality are just a series of rooms with furniture in them, which is what I think the entirety of Dwell Magazine is, by the way. (laughs) This book had a lot of Emily's practical flexible personality in it um and critics said it was completely unlike any other book in its category and i think emily post was completely like any other book in her own category so that that worked out great and And again she was uniquely qualified to write it (laughs) emily is never a slouch when it comes to new media and she appeared on the radio at first in advertisements And then her own weekly program on WEAF New York for eight years. I just want to read to you the very first thing she ever said on that program. It's so cute. (laughs) Do you want to hear it? I do, because I'm thinking of the first thing we ever said, and it wasn't that cute. (laughs) So she said, Good morning. Having just been introduced to you, I ought to have said, how do you do? No one knows this particular rule of etiquette better than I, but I think this introduction of me to you is different. We're not meeting as strangers out in public. We're not even meeting in the house of one of our friends. I've actually come into the privacy of your home. Of course... I don't know where I might be in your living room, but it's quite as likely that I'm in your kitchen, or at your breakfast table, or sitting beside your bed, or wherever you happen to be, and so I can't quite picture myself as being shown into your drawing room as an afternoon visitor with my card case in my hand, and saying formally, how do you do? Can we, like, re-record our intro and use those words? <laughs> oh, it's just so characteristic and charming. I just love it so much. Um, Just like podcasts, early radio brought the host right into the listeners' houses, and she became a friend to all of her listeners. She was a part of their hearts. I'm still, like, astonished at what she said and, and juxtaposing it to
0: what we said. I don't remember what we said. Um, You said... I'm Beckett, I'm Susan, what is this? And then we were like, we had nothing to say. We just laughed.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, there you go. She was probably self-conscious too, but she's learned to hide it better than we did.
0: Yeah, she was older and much more eloquent, I
1: guess. (laughs) Emily Post began a weekly syndicated column. It was called In Good Taste that ran in over 200 newspapers. And to say she was a household name, I mean, I am not even doing this justice i mean get this when fdr he's the president of the united states began doing his fireside chats so the president in a sweater talking reassuringly to a country in the middle of the depression someone complimented him by saying to the president of the united states (laughs) why you're as good as emily post (laughs) (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha. And if that's not a compliment for Emily, I don't know what it is. Now, she didn't really ever care for his politics, but she had to appreciate the compliment given her. And now We enter another subject from past episodes, Lillian Gilbreth. Emily met this psychologist, efficiency expert, and incidentally, mother from Cheaper by the Dozen on a panel they were both on called the Conference on Current Problems. And though the two ladies never really became friends exactly, I'm not sure Lillian had a lot of time for a lot of Girlfriends, mm-hmm. um, Emily really admired Lillian's common sense approach to running a household, particularly the model kitchens that we talked about back in episode 59. And her admiration and her public praise for Lillian Gilbreth might actually have done quite a bit to boost this part of Lillian's career. So, unwittingly, or what's the opposite of that, wittingly, she might have given a hand up to someone just when someone's career needed a boost using her household name.
0: In modern lingo, her brand was built. You know, she herself, just her name, like you said before, it meant etiquette, but it also sold things. Like she was doing ads. I can't even, I saw the ad. I can't even make it work in my brain. But she did ads for old gold cigarettes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But to her defense, she did a taste test first and she did pick that out as the best one.
0: That's right. It was a double-blind taste test. I think,
1: it, I think that's what it says in the ad. So at least she had some integrity in the things she supported. So, mm-hmm. And she did say also that she never smoked except for if a hostess smoked, and, and Emily thought it might be uncomfortable for the hostess if she didn't also accept a cigarette. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yes, that's super cute. Now, one thing that is so odd to me, I don't even know where to put this in, but someone so intelligent and kind is so very, I don't want to say indifferent exactly, but just uninterested in world events, kind of. If something didn't touch her or her family directly, she, she'd she been insulated from so much just by her upbringing. It's almost as if the depression was, you know, unfortunate, wasn't it? You know, here's how to do without servants. Like, What am I saying? She was concerned, but not activated, I guess I'm saying.
0: Yeah, no, I get it. We we failed to mention back in the Depression time, um, she didn't really lose any money because she'd gotten out of the stock market, which is probably the only thing she can thank her ex-husband for.
1: Well, and her only real charity work was a fund that supported work for and money for architects most of whom couldn't get commissions anymore, of course. And, you know, she, she knew a lot of them and she contributed and worked for that. And her main activism, oddly, for a woman who didn't drink much either, was for the repeal of prohibition. I mean, not everyone's an activist, of course. It's just a blank spot that we often can fill in with other subjects that, that we cover. And it's just so strange that there is a blank spot. And maybe she still thought that arguing was just bad taste. Maybe. Hmm. Well, I think self-promotion is bad taste, but that didn't bother her at all. No. (laughs) Well, so racism— I'm sorry, I have to keep laughing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. Uh, Yes,
1: so um, racism, not mentioned, not even on her radar. Mm -mm. Suffragists, the fight for the vote— Not even on her radar. In fact, she had to write an apologetic letter to a suffragist that she had insulted by being sort of flippant about all that she had gone through to get women the vote. Mm -hmm. This is, I'm going to quote from her letter to that person who she had to apologize to having had no interference with my own liberties, the right to earn a living, to keep what I earned, to have entire guardianship over my children and to get extraordinary credit for efforts that would have been nothing for a man left me sitting in the situation of having everything pleasant brought to me on a silver platter. And then she said, I was very unaware of other points of view. Hmm. So anyway, here's one thing. Here's a comedic thing. One world affair she was really into, when the British king, Edward VIII, abdicated due to his love of Wallace Simpson, she was asked by people, so how, now that he's not the king, how do we address him and Mrs. Simpson? And she said, well, of course, you address Edward by saying, your royal highness, and you address Wallace Simpson by saying, you. (laughs) And everyone ate that up with a spoon and a spoonful of sugar.
0: I, um, part of me wants to cover her, but part of me doesn't want to have to be sympathetic to her.
1: It might be a good exercise.
0: Historically, it worked out best that he abdicated. Agreed. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, at the time, sure. I, yeah. I mean, part of me is like, yes, you have to understand people. And part of me is like, no, I just want to keep hating her. <laughs> We're talking about Wallace Simpson here.
1: Of all the things to take a position on, I guess she was asked directly. And so she gave her answer. Hmm. Well, incomplete cataract surgery left her with poor vision. It was bad. She had double
0: cataracts and needed four operations. And it wasn't like LASIK surgery now where you can go home that day and you know, resume your normal activities within a day. Like she was in bed and weighted down so she wouldn't move for months. That's horrible.
1: Does it detach your retina or something if you move around? Um,
0: I think that was what it was because they had weights on each side of her head so she would move her head so it would stay still while she healed.
1: Eesh. I know. Super uncomfortable and you don't even have a podcast to listen to. So Emily relied now on a dictaphone named Susie... <laughs> we always name machines a secretary named Yvonne a companion named Hilda to get her work done and her calendar was fuller than mine will ever be which reminds me so much of my own parents oh yes oh my goodness you look and they have to when can we come down for our weekend oh this oh no I have this meeting oh this (laughs) no oh we're away for this conference oh no your father's agreed to play this gig for so-and-so well and then there's a big pause (laughs) like, dude, I will book six months ahead next time. And they're retired, yeah? Yeah. What? No. I mean, I don't know. I mean, yeah. (laughs) I mean, from their careers. I don't know. I don't think they've ever had a period where there was anything blank in a calendar. Unless they just bought it and are bringing it home and unwrapping it from the store. (laughs) Um, Okay. Speaking of parents, how about this? Grandma, as she was now, spent almost every Sunday with her grandson, Bill, she was such a good and involved grandmother where she hadn't been a very involved parent. You know,
0: no, she hadn't. But I, part of that is, you know, she sent the kids off to Pomfret, you know, as soon as they could go to boarding school because that was what people did then of her class. Right. But they also had these great adventures. They did Europe and they did vacations together. Um. So, yeah, she wasn't that involved like I think we consider involved or like she was with Bill. But I think for the times and for her, her class, I thought she did a pretty good job.
1: Well, and I guess she did take them to the weirdly named Babylon community to swim mm-hmm. with their paternal grandparents.
0: Right. Or she had to see the mother-in-law again.
1: Her mother-in-law was a piece of work. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Let's just leave it at that.
1: Based on her experiences with Bill and um, maybe a little back to her own children, what she herself considered to be her favorite book of hers children are people i know radical How
0: about that for a concept
1: the um basic premise of this is patience and tolerance and common sense will get you far um i think i remember one line where she wrote something like if the child is just lying there doing nothing feel free to set them on a task suitable for the family but if they're engaged in something in their own work it is just as rude to interrupt a child as it would be to interrupt a grown adult." Wow. To have them do something for you, and you should just do it yourself rather than interrupt them. Respect for children Mm -hmm. leads to respect from children Mm -hmm. is her main. I think that's common sense. That's good. Hmm. Now, World War II arrived, and the main activity that Emily engaged in during this particular war was revamping her book with a wartime supplement, where she covered such things as Hitchhiking. Yes, because with the gas rationing being what it is, people were encouraged to hitchhike. Impromptu carpooling is what it was viewed as. Mm-hmm. So she covered the safest way for a lady to hitchhike. What activity was permissible at a USO dance? How to repair things rather than buying new? That is very useful. How to react when you see a wounded soldier on the street? What to do when your loved one comes home sad or altered mentally? And, critically, I think, the proper treatment of defeated enemies.
0: Mm. I mean, these were
1: not frivolous endeavors.
0: Mm-mm. No, not at all. And she she did that with, it, like you said, her newspaper column. But her radio scripts, too, she was keeping it current for the times. She was addressing the things that people had questions on. I wondered every time I read this stuff, how much of that was her observations or how much of it was... You know, one of the 3,000 letters a week that she got.
1: Emily Post, as time went on, would ask taxi drivers. She would ask waitresses. She would ask anyone that she came across about their lives and would get a feel for how society was changing. And she would alter her book to follow the trends of society. And that is very admirable. And it has kept it going for so long. Uh, Okay, get this. You know how surprised we were to realize Josephine Baker was quite the activist during World War II? Emily Post, secretly, no fanfare, spent a month or two after World War II in Germany, helping orphaned Jewish children move to America. No word even to her own family. I don't know where this came from, but she changed so many lives just from this one trip.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I have that in my notes, too, with a star next to it, because it was such a a selfless act in a life that had a lot of selfishness to it, I think, which sounds terrible because she did a lot of good. But um, yeah, and she even got um, someone who was aged out of the program. Uh, she got him over because she befriended him.
1: Well, she used her connections to get him fake documents. Mm-hmm. So unprecedented and not followed up with anything. But there it is. Mm hmm. I, you know, I don't know. (laughs) People are so complicated, aren't they? They are. (laughs) Emily began the Emily Post Institute to strengthen her legacy and to continue to change with the times. Um, It was a place where problems of, quote, gracious living came to be studied. Yeah, she was in her 70s. And I think part of it
0: was motivated by her realization that she wasn't going to be around forever. And that if she wanted her life's work to be maintained at the level which she would expect of herself, she needed to turn it over to family. So she worked with Ned on the Emily Post Institute and founded it. And um, in short order, she kind of handed over the reins to him. He was kind of controlling, you know, all the employees and the messages that got out. Uh, She had some ghostwriters, her assistant, that were writing her columns and even filling in for her on the radio. But we're talking about a woman in her 70s. She's entitled to step back a little bit. And that's what she was doing with the Emily Post Institute.
1: When she was 78, there was a poll in Pageant Magazine. 300 women journalists were asked to rank the most powerful women in the world. Eleanor Roosevelt came in at number one and Emily Post came in at number two. That's amazing. She was above Princess Elizabeth, soon to be Queen Elizabeth. (laughs) She and Ned agreed to write a cookbook, although Ned wrote every dang word of it, and she put her name on it for increased sales.
0: (laughs) Uh, He got a little payback for that by writing her biography. Um, It was published in 1961 with his name in the byline, but it was all written by a woman ghostwriter. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Complicated. yeah, it's sweet, but um, I wouldn't look to it for facts because it's just all family lore. I think
1: so. Emily's health began to fail. There was one humorous incident involving Emily losing her panties in the street. Um, pick them up casually and put them in your handbag, in case you're wondering. <laughs> but I, other-
0: I, I read that, and I in my head, I just—I mean, I just laughed. I was like, I'm trying to imagine. You know, a 70-some-odd-year-old woman dropping her panties in the street.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, otherwise, the news was not good. Dementia had taken hold. For sure. Her health continued to fail. And on September twenty-fifth, 1960, Emily Post died at her apartment in New York of pneumonia, officially. Um, She was cremated, and her ashes are buried in the Tuxedo Park Cemetery. News of her death appeared in the front pages of newspapers all over the nation. A beloved icon had disappeared forever, although her work certainly went on, even to the modern day. Oh, yeah. She herself had revised etiquette 10 times in 40
0: years, and it's still being revised today. It's still in publication. It's never
1: stopped. Well, that will about cover the actual life of Emily Post. So are we ready for media? (laughs) We are. (laughs) As I'm staring at it. Uh, You want to talk websites first? Sure. So the first website that we would be remiss not to lead you to is an easily rememberable one. The Emily Post Institute is at emilypost.com. It includes links to... All the books written by members of the family attached to the Emily Post Institute. I mean, there's wedding books, there's modern manners books, there's manners for men, manners at work. You'll find them all linked there, including a link to a podcast called Awesome Etiquette that is hosted by Lizzie Post and Daniel Post Senig, which started out as a, only a segment on one of my favorite shows, The Dinner Party Download, and is now its own show. So good for them. You know, they also have a searchable database of questions
0: and advice. It's called the Edipedia. It's accessed uh, via emilypost.com.
1: You can read the full text of the original 1922 etiquette online and also the full text of the title market. Those are the Mm -hmm. two that I looked. I'm sure you can find all the other novels, too. Those are just the two that I read online.
0: Oh, that's funny. Those are the only two. I No, I'm sorry. And Truly Emily Post, which was a, which was a biography written by, quote, Edwin in 1961. That's online, too.
1: Okay. See, so that I had as a book, so I didn't have it as a, as a reading online. There's a description and a little travelogue about modern Tuxedo Park that I can link you to.
0: I fell into a rabbit hole with Tuxedo Park. A lot of the pages that I dropped on the floor were filled with Tuxedo Park stories. Oh, (laughs) because it's kind of a neat little commune. I mean, it's like um, a country unto itself up there. Um, There is a YouTube video called Table Manners from 1947, which is voiced by Emily herself. And it was recorded in her garden and on Martha's Vineyard. It's quite lovely where she's giving some advice on table manners and how to eat soup. (laughs) How do you eat soup? You take the spoon and you move it away from you to get it, and then you bring it back to your mouth. And if you have to get the last drops in the bowl because it's so good, you can tilt your bowl forward away from you and do it the same way. Okay. Which is how I actually eat soup because that's how my mother told me proper ladies ate soup.
1: Uh, You know what? I didn't look up the one thing that I am very, very strict about. I didn't even look. I'm going to have to search or somebody can search for me. The 1922 edition to see if my grandma was right that ladies never let the backs of their selves touch the backs of a chair.
0: Oh, you didn't look it up? I didn't. Oh, maybe that's in the Edipedia. Well, I'm too old
1: to change now, so <laughs> I do it even in the car.
0: Do you really? Yeah. You must have like abs of steel.
1: Yes, that's one way to do it, I suppose.
0: Yeah, you have a pretty flat tummy. <laughs>
1: Also, I found a list of etiquette books of times gone by that I thought was interesting. I bought a few at um, like Half Price Books and the thrift store and and this and that, but they just didn't seem too relevant. But I can provide links to this list and you can kind of go out and um, look for them yourselves. The older ones have to tell you not to spit your tobacco on ladies' dresses. So that's the level with which we begin. (laughs) <laughs> back in the early to mid 1800s. So we have come a long way. Oh,
0: definitely. Now we need to know how to write an email properly. Yes.
1: Um, you know what?
0: I think by motor to the Golden Gate, the travel log that she did with her son mm-hmm. and her cousin-in-law, um, I think that's online too because I read it and I don't think I have the actual book. They actually re-published uh, it in 2004 because the timing was better. I think, <laughs> And I sold. think that's
1: how I um, read it. I think my library had gotten a hold of one of those newer copies. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, I think I read it online. Um, that's all I have for websites. I have lots of... Uh, Emily had written a How to Behave Even Though You're a Debutante, um, How to Behave as a Motorist. I'll just put some <laughs> links to those graphics on Pinterest. Oh, okay.
0: And I have um, some articles that I read online about... Just related things. I'm not going to cover all of them right now, but they'll be on the show notes, too.
1: And then the main book, other than Ned's 1961 book that we had to really rely on, is Emily Post by Laura Claridge. Yeah. But, I mean, this thing is huge. This is
0: almost as big as uh, Etiquette, I think, because I'm picking it up off the ground. Um, And I'm realizing how heavy this book was.
1: And if you get through this book without reading the footnotes, you're missing a lot of information. And the footnotes (laughs) are not on the foot. I guess they would be end notes. They provide a lot of information that didn't seem to fit, you know, in the prose. This actually could be one of my favorite biographies I've read. She does such a good job of tying it to the
0: times. You know, she'll talk about... You know Elizabeth Katie Stanton and Marie Curie was in there too, just to kind of put them into history, kind of like we do at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I might buy this book. I was super impressed. I've read some bad biographies, including one for this show that I'm not even going to talk about. Um, so this one was really good. But we can't forget the most famous of all. Thanks a lot, Emily Post, written I loved- by. Jennifer LaRue Huguet and illustrated by Alexandra Boisier. I'm going to go French with that pronunciation. Um, Such a cute children's book. This is, you know, when you have those showers, those baby showers where they ask you to bring a book, this is a good one to send because it's colorful and. It's a good, cute story. I loved it.
1: The basic premise is that the mother has gone downtown and bought this book. And she is going to impose these rules on the household. And the little kids keep the refrain is, thanks a lot, Emily Post. (laughs) And so every time they said that, my little son would be like, thanks a lot, Emily Post. (laughs) And all of those characters, the kindlies, the top lofties, and everybody were ghost-like figures that only the children could see in the house.
0: It's so adorable. It's so
1: cute. I love it. Yeah.
0: That's another buy one if you have a kid, I think.
1: Okay. And let me leave you with a quote from Emily Post herself. She thought that etiquette was not simply a series of rules. Etiquette is the science of living. It embraces everything. It is the code of sportsmanship and of honor. It is ethics. And Emily Post made it accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye. You can get in touch with us on Facebook or Instagram or over on Twitter where we are, the History Chicks with an X, which is a long story. Our Pinterest boards are updated nearly daily, much to my shame. And yes, we all want to see your vacation photos. Ideally, they'd have some connection to history, but pretty scenery is always welcome too. Over on Instagram, just use the hashtag #HistoryChicksFieldTrip, field trip and we'll all be able to see them.
0: Keep on the path, I'll be
1: there. Keep on the path, I'll be there. Even rules should seem fair. Keep on the path, I'll be there. If you take it easy, if you take it slow, find out the hard way, long way to go take it easy if you take it slow find out the hard way long way to go so i'm cutting that part out okay so- <laughs> i don't think emily post would want us talking about our boobs <laughs> no